boy, Chance Gilliam, making my home these days on the great time-honored open road. The Empire Builder has me westward bound. Mountains are beginning to crop up out of the long barren landscape in western Montana, but by the time you hear this, I'll be exploring Seattle, Washington, and her surrounding areas. I'm on an adventure to push my boundaries, spread chance by chance, and connect with all sorts of wonderful people along the way. Today, we have an episode I am humbled to bring to you. Both cautionary and hopeful, this is one you cannot afford to miss. Trista Harris is a philanthropic futurist focused on generational change. Educated at Oxford, Howard University in Washington, D.C., and the Humphrey Institute of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, she's been working tirelessly for years on end to ensure a safe transition into this dawning technological age. Once a program officer at the St. Paul Foundation and Minnesota Community Foundation, she became the executive director of the Headwaters Foundation for Justice in Minneapolis. Then, in 2013, Trista accepted the position of President of the Minnesota Council on Foundations, expanding and strengthening a vibrant community of grantmakers who individually and collectively advance the common good. Their 180 members award over $1 billion annually. She helps them to be more effective. Here, we discuss our current deceptive phase of exponential growth, the danger of scapegoats and technological unemployment, and the need to create a new financial model. She discloses the critical skill sets for coming years, and that leads us into the questionable importance of formal education, plus the real importance of self-designed education. We talk about time management and avoiding burnout. She urges young entrepreneurs to take a leap of faith and describe systems to ensure success. We learn about her weekly review process, a possible future for politics, dematerialization, some advice to her younger self, the experience of meeting Sir Richard Branson, and much more. Seriously, listen and put this to use. The future of civilization depends on you. I give you my insightful conversation with Trista Harris. Trista, welcome to the show. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me today. I'm going to start by asking a question you asked in an interview I saw with Sir Richard Branson. You started out asking him about his first act of philanthropy. Yeah. And I would love to hear yours, given <laughs> what you do now. So my first act of philanthropy when I was in... Uh, middle school and high school, my mom was a toy buyer for Musicland, which <laughs> Musicland no longer exists, but uh, toys were sort of this thing that they did on the side. And we ended up having this huge closet that was full of toys. And as like, you know, a teenager, it was not as exciting to me as it would have been if I was little. Sure. And so I convinced my mom that she should let me take all of the toys and then donate them to a local battered women's shelter. Wow. And what I ended up doing is coordinating a school toy drive. So was able to donate all the toys that my mom had and then encourage a bunch of other people to donate toys. And then we brought a couple of truckloads and it was this really great experience. And looking back on it now as somebody that works in philanthropy, it was pretty much doing what I'm doing now is giving away other people's money and stuff and then <laughs> leveraging it to make other people give more money and stuff away. But as my mom likes to say, I did not have very much skin in the game in that, <laughs> in that process, but had the coordinating ability to help everybody else get on board to get something big yeah, to happen. Yeah, and it must have struck a chord in you someplace. For someplace. sure, for sure. Let's 
talk about MCF and just give a brief overview of what you do here. Yeah, so I've been the president of the Minnesota Council on Foundations for about the last three and a half years. We're a membership association for foundations, so we often describe it as we're like the Chamber of Commerce for for foundations. So our 180 members give away about a billion and a half dollars a year, and our job is to help them be more effective. Most of them are Minnesota-based foundations, so you know Target Foundation or the Margaret A. Cargill Foundation, lots of family foundations and community foundations are also part of the group, and it's really about helping them connect with each other so that they can do better work in the community. What do you mean helping them connect with each other? Yeah, so there isn't a foundation that's big enough to actually fix the problem that they're working on. Mm -hmm. And so foundations are working on issues that both government and business haven't been able to solve with a lot more time and a lot more money. So they're working on some really hard stuff. Mm -hmm. And sometimes as you're working in foundations, you forget that you can't do it all by yourself. So you get frustrated because you haven't been able to close the achievement gap or you haven't been able to end homelessness. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the numbers and you go, oh, wait, you know, we're giving away $5 million a year. That's for sure not enough to to solve a problem that's existed for a really long time. But if you partner with other peers with similar interests, then suddenly you get more leverage and traction and you're more likely to create greater change in the community. And looking at the change you are creating these days, mm-hmm. You are a futurist. Yeah. Can you define that concept for me? Yep. So I'm a philanthropic futurist, which is about helping foundations and nonprofits figure out what's coming next in the space of doing good. My big frustration has been futurists for a long time have been figuring out what's the next tech toy that'll sell or what color Mm. Nike should be next year. (laughs) And they're really powerful tools. And I'd rather see those tools used to make the world a better place. And so we help foundations figure out what's coming next. The example that I often give is people think of futurism as like, oh, you're looking in a crystal ball. But some of it is just remembering that baby boomers will continue to get older. You know, we were surprised when there weren't enough elementary schools for baby boomers. And then we were surprised that there weren't enough colleges for baby boomers. And then there weren't enough jobs. And it's the same group of people. They're just getting older and older and their needs are changing as they go. Mm. And now we'll be surprised that there's not enough retirement communities. And futurism allows you to to pick a point in time that you're looking towards and figure out what are all the conditions that might exist then and how to prepare for that. Looking towards another example and touching on the advent of technology and advanced Mm -hmm. intelligence, it also seems inevitable at this point, and yet it's not a broad concern. It seems to have fallen to the wayside of public view. Do you have any idea why that sort of thing happens? Yeah, I think that... There's a deceptive phase in technology where things are barely used. So something like Google Glass Mm -hmm. is in the deceptive phase where people go, that's really dumb. Nobody's using that. You look silly. Why Why is this happening? And, you know, they, they sell a couple thousand pairs or whatever, and everybody goes, oh, that was a huge failure. Hmm. But with exponential technology and exponential growth, what happens is there's this consistent doubling that happens. I think it's every 18 months or so technology gets uh, twice as fast and uh, costs less Isn't as that it's happening. Moore's Law? Mm-hmm. And so we are right in this crazy curve of Moore's Law which is changing so, so quickly in a way that humans aren't built to process. We're used to linear change. And if you say something is 
32 steps away, you'd go, oh, yeah, it's about that far. Um, <laughs> but if you say it's 32 exponential steps, you have no idea what's going on. And yeah. so I never do the math right on it, but I think it's like to the moon and back. And if it was a couple more exponential steps, it would be outside of the universe because it is doubling in a way that it just gets so big so, so quickly. And as we look at technology, for many of us, we're just using our cell phones and we're not understanding all of the stuff that's happening behind the scenes. Mm. But the way that those technologies are starting to intersect and the way that they'll influence our day-to-day life is going to completely transform society. So spending time with futurists that have been working in the tech space, the staff makes fun of me when I come back because they say I sound like I need a tinfoil hat because I'm like, the artificial (laughs) intelligence and the robots and all the jobs and then the cars will be driving themselves and we have to rebuild the cities. And they're like, what are you you talking about? But it's true. Because we don't don't have those conversations. So in the last year in particular, I've become very, very concerned about technological unemployment, which is already starting to happen. And because of it, what happens is society starts to develop these scapegoats. So they say, oh, it's immigrants or it's people of color. That's the issue because Mm -hmm. that's something that we understand. But if you say, no, it's actually a robot and it's efficiency and that's what's making the difference. And if there is a robot, there's one called, I think its name is his name. See, this is what, this is how the robots start to get you. (laughs) Oh, they're so cute. Um, Its name is Baxter and it is the size of a person Mm -hmm. and you don't program it. You just grab its arm and you show it what to do. Oh, I've heard about this. And it's made to sit where a person sat on an assembly line and it costs $20,000 and it works. 24 hours a day and it's for sure replacing lots and lots of people so going Mm. to these conferences where we talk about this my concern is that folks will be super excited about the technology but they don't talk about the people part and I think there's really good things that could happen on the people side just like we had in the industrial revolution where people used to work 80 hours a week now we work around 40 hours a week we could work 20 hours a week but how to figure out the financial model so that that works, so that you're paying people what it takes to actually be able to live in this world. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things I'm most excited about is that so many new opportunities will open up. Mm-hmm. People are for sure scared to lose jobs mm-hmm. for good reason. But if you look at a lot of the manual labor jobs mm-hmm. that a huge percent of our workforce does, even, even just yeah. looking at drivers... If you freed up all of those minds to contribute towards bigger issues, Mm -hmm. some great progress could happen. Yeah. You made this point in a a recent blog post on your website, Mm tristaharris.org, and one of the things you said was that instead of blaming these scapegoats and and worrying about this problem, we should just focus on retraining the workforce in management and strategy and those sorts of things. Can you tell me a little more about what you mean by that and perhaps advice to young people about to enter school? For sure. I have a a daughter that's a senior in high school. Okay. (laughs) So So we we are sitting right in the middle of this. I'm like, oh, none of these jobs are going to be around. Mm -hmm. So I've got a daughter that is 17 Mm -hmm. and she is uh, about to go to college. And so we're having really intense conversations about what is the purpose of education Hmm. and how can you develop a skill set that can't be automated. So project management and things that you do with people and creativity are places that humans will always be. And so build to that. The other piece that's 
a big concern is that we often think about automation and manufacturing and and those sort of pieces. But now we're seeing things like Watson that are diag- um, artificial intelligence that is diagnosing diseases better than a doctor does. Mm. And Watson is also doing legal work. And we're never going to be able to outsmart artificial intelligence. So we need to figure out how to work with it. You just mentioned the purpose of education. Mm-hmm. Can we touch on that and also what you think is necessary? Because especially these days with the amount of debt that builds up. It's unbelievable. Yeah, many people are are reluctant to go to secondary education Mm -hmm. for good reason. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, let's talk about the purpose of it all. I heard a quote once that if you took Laura Ingalls Wilder from Little House on the Prairie, if you put her in a Target, she would lose her mind because it's like... fluorescent lights and there's all these things and there's so many choices yeah um but if you put her in a school she'd know exactly what to do Mm. and our education system has not changed at all and Mm. what the world needs from kids is so so different and it's it's hard as a parent my son is 12 and he's in middle school and he's learning how to memorize math facts and memorize dates and I'm like none of this matters and then I have to say it quietly so he doesn't fail out of middle school but these are not the skill sets that kids need to be successful in the world they need to learn how to be good people and they need to learn how to care about each other and they need to learn how to be creative and hustle in the ability to remix lots of things and turn it into something that has a lot more value Mm. those are going to be the most important skills moving forward and how do we build that in kids instead of kind of knocking it out of them as they go through the education system, yeah. I think is a, a huge challenge. It's been a challenge for a long time, but as the price of higher education goes up just in an exponential fashion that doesn't make any sense, kids have some really significant decisions to make about, is this worth it? And for kids that are my daughter's age, they're really in this in-between time where it's going to be very difficult for her to get a first job if she doesn't get an undergraduate degree. But five years from now, 10 years from now, it may not matter at all. And Mm. so she's sort of the last generation that is going to be entering into a system that is either going to collapse because it's too expensive or it's going to collapse because kids understand that you can learn anything that you want from the internet. And so why do you need a a diploma at the end of that. I've, I've seen some really good examples of folks that have done free online courses through MIT and they've developed their own major and then say, here's the classes that I've taken, here's what I've learned, here's how I'm demonstrating proficiency. I don't have a degree, but I've done all the work of a degree. Will you hire me? And if I'm an employer, yeah, I just want somebody that can do the work. <laughs> sure, sure. Do you have any other ideas of ways to build up that experience? online courses for one, any other ways to develop the skills that you need? I think the online course piece is fantastic. I think it's about finding a passion and Mm. digging really deep and doing that thing. So if you're passionate about drones, learn everything that you can about it. Take the free online courses, but then build your own. Then talk to people that are experts. Spend time in the space that you're excited about. And that real experience is going to do more for you than a degree program that maybe is using technology from five years ago as as they're teaching you what's coming next. Using this to segue into your own education, Mm -hmm. can you tell me a bit about Oxford, Howard, the U of M, maybe focusing on teachers or relationships that had the most profound influence on you? Um, I went to Howard University for undergraduate, and it was a transformational experience. And Ta-Nehisi Coates, his recent book, Between the World and Me, Mm -hmm. talks a lot about 
Howard in the way that I think about it of like it's this mecca and it's this place and it's it's more than the the building it's the people and it's the history and the experience I think for me it was transformational to be in a space like that where the president of the university when you first start tells you you have a responsibility to the race and so mm. what are you going to do to make the world a better place and how are each of you going to take your unique skills and expertise and use it to make the world better that responsibility is so so important and i think often when we talk to young people we don't talk to them about their responsibility to give back and their responsibility to help and to leave the world a better place than they found so really, really enjoyed it being in a different city. I'm from Minnesota, so going away to D.C. and just seeing people with different experiences was just so helpful because you get sort of in your bubble and you forget that folks have different different experiences and cities operate differently. And then afterwards, ended up coming back to go to the University of Minnesota for grad school. I went straight from undergraduate to graduate. I think for some folks that doesn't make sense. It makes sense to get kind of the job experience and then decide if you want to do the graduate school school experience. I had known that I wanted to work in nonprofits since I was eight or nine years old, and I've worked in nonprofits since I was 14. And so I was really clear, here's the things that I have to do to get there. And a graduate degree was an important part of that. So Humphrey has a great nonprofit management program, had a great advisor, Dr. Diaz, who has since passed away, that used to be at the Ford Foundation. Mm-hmm. And he and I did the career talk and sat down and I said, oh, I want to work in nonprofits and I want to run a community center and we can meet people's basic needs and then they'll have space to be civically engaged and it'll be so amazing. And he was like, you're really intense. And if you work one place, you're going to drive people nuts. You're always (laughs) trying to fix things. People don't want things fixed. They want it to be the same. Um, And I was like, well, that is very depressing career advice. And so his advice was work at a foundation because you will have a 20,000 foot view of what's happening in the sector. And you can build capacity, but he said the intensity will be spread out. You'll still drive people crazy, but you'll be giving them money, so they'll put up with it, which is <laughs> rude but very true. But true. The other piece of advice that was very helpful is it's really hard to get a job in philanthropy. It's a field where people don't leave, and there's not a lot of jobs in the field. And so his advice was fundraise first so that you know what it feels like to sit on the other side of that table. Mm-hmm. And in that process, find foundations that treat you with respect and have read your grant application and their values fit yours. Those are the sort of places that you want to work, which which turned out to be great advice. Yeah. I'm hoping you can describe to me how this passion for philanthropy felt at the time or yeah. still feels now that you stayed so driven over such yeah. a a long period of time. With the nonprofit sector, I had spent some time at Pillsbury House in South Minneapolis when I was a kid. My mom did some volunteer work in the theater program there, and I spent a lot of nights hanging out and kind of seeing all the things that they had and knew that I wanted to be in a place like that that helped people. Hmm. You know, that vision got clearer as I got older about, well, like, what does it mean and is it running programs or do you want to run the organization and what sort of skills would you need to do that? The philanthropy piece, I had just a very basic understanding that there were these foundations and the money came from somewhere and they were giving that money to help these nonprofits that were doing really great stuff. But it took a while to just decode how the organizations worked. And his advice about fundraising was so useful because I was a a grant writer. And so I was spending all of my time on the websites of these foundations saying, 
okay, you say you fund this thing. Does that fit with the Girl Scouts where I used to work and fundraise for? Mm -hmm. You know, when you say make the world a better place, do you mean this way? And (laughs) trying to get to the bottom of all of those structures. And so that helped me to develop a real passion for figuring out what does it take to get into that space and how to develop the relationships that are necessary to get that first philanthropy job. Awesome. And looking at this on a day-to-day basis, Mm -hmm. because it's something I often struggle with, Mm -hmm. it's along those same lines of having continually returned to this intention of Mm -hmm. helping people and dissecting this field in the way that you do. How do you take care of yourself, manage your time so that you are able to contribute? Yeah. I think there's different points in your career where you have to do different things. So I think throughout my my 20s, it was about developing skills. So what are the things that I have to know how to do? And is that doing Excel spreadsheets? Is that understanding how an organization's budget works? Is it figuring out the best templates to do fundraising and and figure out what's the sort of language that you use? So it was Mm. really those tangible skills. Mm. I think in the beginning part of my 30s, it was about relationships. And Mm. so I know how to do these things, but how do I figure out who are the right people that can help me move this idea forward or move to that new organization? And that's the harder part of developing a network of support that is both there for you when you need to move to the next level and people can say, oh, I know that person that's applying for the position. They do really good stuff and I'm going to say good things about them (laughs) without being asked. Or is it about folks that kick you in the butt and push you to do the next thing because you get too comfortable? (laughs) And so for your network to say, I see this position is open. You should really apply for it. It sounds like you're scared. Get over yourself and you know, do the thing and turn it in. Sure. So I think those pieces are are really important as you develop along your career path. I'm at the place now where it's figuring out what are the things that only I can do. And so I know how to do a lot of stuff, but I have a really strong staff that also knows how to do those things. And so how do I help them build their leadership skills to be able to, you know, be the one that's driving the bus on specific projects? And then what are the things that only I can add value to and how to make sure that I'm spending the majority of my time in those spaces where only I can do it because otherwise I become the roadblock for all these other brilliant people that yeah. could do 99% of the work without me doing anything. Yeah. What, what do you think your places are? One of the moves that we're making as an organization, we just finished a strategic plan last year. And so this year, it's really about me spending as much time as possible helping foundations understand what's coming next on the issues that they care about Mm. and really providing that one-on-one technical assistance and support to help them be as effective as possible. The other piece is me deepening our organization's understanding of what these trends look like. Mm. And we've got a new president, new federal priorities. All of this is a huge time of transition. And Mm -hmm. so how do we help organizations say you can't go down the same path that you were going down before because everything's different and so let's think about the ways that those conditions are different and how you can be the most effective as opposed to continuing to go down the same road that you've been going and then all of a sudden you hit a wall and you go well how come i'm not effective anymore well because you're on the wrong road now you need to go someplace else yeah yeah for young entrepreneurs starting out not yet on the road yeah yeah, not in any yeah. danger of crashing into a wall. Yeah. How do they start driving, so to speak? Yeah. And perhaps this is a way to uh, delve into the book that you recently co-authored too. Mm-hmm. 
my husband just started a business. He runs an office supply company. And it's been really interesting to see him make the transition. He was a high school administrator for a number of years, mm. has always had this entrepreneurial spirit spirit, and was waiting for the right time. And there's never a right time. And so at some point it was like, you just have to do that thing. And I think for young entrepreneurs, that leap of faith is the most important part. So when you're younger, you have less to lose. You've got less bills. You don't have the mortgage yet. Like do the hard things when you still have the time and space to be able to do it Hmm. and figure out what's, what's the unique dent that you can create in the world. So what is it that you feel super passionate about and that the world needs for you to do and that you can develop that unique solution for and then sit in, sit in that space and every day do the work. So I think that's been the the wonderful thing to watch with him is that it's very easy to get overwhelmed when you're an entrepreneur. There's a million things that you can do. The funny, he'll so not appreciate me telling the story, but um, (laughs) the funny part being a high school administrator, you're constantly reactive. So kids are fighting and you run and you break them up and then you're mediating and you're talking to parents and you're doing all those things. When he became an entrepreneur, suddenly he was in charge of his own time and there weren't any crises. He had to decide what he wanted to do next. And he didn't have any of the systems or processes to figure out how to do that. And that's what I do all day. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking? How do you, how do you not have a system for a to-do list or you know that sort mm-hmm. of thing? Because his day was, what does everybody need from me? And I will do those things. Uh, and so developing the systems that support you are so important. And then once you have those in place, it becomes so much easier. So figuring out where where your strengths are as an entrepreneur, what are your weaknesses? Are there places that you can bring on other experts that can fill up those weaknesses? You shouldn't. When folks first start out, there's a lot of pressure to, I should be able to do everything really well. You're probably great at a handful of the things. Do a handful of the things. Try to see where you can get help for the other parts. And then your business will grow way faster. Actually, just uh, two days ago, I recruited a a friend of mine. His name's Chris Felina to fix up my website because I had this piece of crap website for about a month trying to figure it out. And I just, it was beyond me. So brought him on. How can people ask for help when they need it like that? Especially for young entrepreneurs who don't have maybe the resources to pay these experts in different fields. I think a big piece of it is building your network and understanding what are the skill sets that you can add to your network and what are the things that you're offering and then what do you need from people. And I think there's been times in my career where I've been too good at the oh, I can help you with this and I can do that part and whatever you need and really building up and supporting my network, but then not developing the same muscle to ask for help when I needed it. Mm -hmm. And so that's been a a piece that I'm really working through now. I have a, a weekly review process where I spend about an hour and a half to two hours on Friday reflecting back on the week that has happened and the the questions that I ask myself and write up in a Word document are things like, what was the most exciting challenge that you had this week? What was the hardest thing? What distracted you from what you were trying to accomplish? One of our focuses is connecting members with each other. And so who did you connect this week and what was the result of that? And then the last question is, who are the two people that you asked for help? And Mm. that is always the hardest thing. And often on Friday, 
as I'm doing this, I go, oh, I didn't do that. And then I think of two people that I need to ask for help so that I can sort of like check (laughs) up on my own list that I did the thing. So knowing what those weaknesses are and then building systems that's checking you on that is Hmm. really important. What the weekly review process has done for me is it allows me to see bad habits that keep on popping up. So Hmm. almost every week I write that the time that I felt least effective uh, was when I'm mindlessly surfing the internet when I'm at home and I'm like chilling with the iPad and nothing gets accomplished. (laughs) And if I'm writing that eight weeks in a row, then I'm looking back at the previous week as I'm writing that one. I go, oh, it's still the same stupid thing. I need to plug the iPad in downstairs. Hmm. So it, it pushes you to notice those patterns and to say, if I'm looking back on the weekend, this is the thing that frustrated me and it's consistently frustrating me. My life will get better if I fix this thing and make something about that habit different. How long does it take you to do the review? That piece of it, I would say, is about a half an hour, 45 minutes. Okay. I also clean out my email inbox. I clear mm. out my physical box. And then I do some planning about what the next week is going to look yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. So there's a... Um, Getting things done. That's what it's called. Getting things done. Um, So their weekly review process has been really helpful for me because so much stuff just lives in my head. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm constantly updating my my to-do list and figuring out, okay, what's what's the most important priority, then it all doesn't sit on my brain and I have more time and space to be creative. Absolutely. And what is next for... MCF right now. Yeah. So uh, we're doing a lot of work in uh, the public policy space, and I'm going to spend a lot more time there. I'm a registered lobbyist, but I'm not very good at it. And we have a, a, a real registered lobbyist who actually knows what he's doing. And so my goal this year is for Bob Tracy, who's our director of public policy and communications, to just teach me more about how to develop relationships with elected officials mm-hmm. and understand this constantly changing political environment and what that means for foundations and the causes that they care about and they're supporting. The other place that we spend a lot of time and energy is diversity, equity, and inclusion and how to ensure that we're developing the pipeline of leaders into the field of philanthropy that better represents the community. Touching on uh, on politics, yeah. what do you know about how this system works? <laughs> Not much. So I think the more you dig into politics, the more you're like, how in the heck is all of this stuff working together? Mm. Often departments are working cross-purpose. I've been really excited about some futurists that are working in the civic space and how to move to the place on online platforms where people have real conversations about large systemic issues and how to solve them. And they're using their brain power to get to the bottom of those issues. Who comes to the top of your mind in that regard? Um, Institute for the Future has been doing amazing work in that space. And they do this thing called Artifacts of the Future, which are, they sort of create advertisements for things that don't exist. And uh, it just gets your mind kind of Whoa. running about what's what's possible. And one of their artifacts of the future was a, a picture of what looks like somebody's cell phone. And it's a, an interface that allows an elected official to send a message to all of the constituents hmm. that are in their service area. And it says, I'm voting on this bill today. Here's a short summary of what it is. Do you think I should vote yes? Do you think I should vote no? Would you like to defer your vote to the Bicycle Association of Minnesota or the Car Owners Association (laughs) of Minnesota to better understand how people are thinking about issues in local community? And 
of course we would be super overwhelmed if we were getting seven text messages a day from different elected officials like what do you think about this how about this that's why we put them in those spaces right i think there's something about better understanding constituency and what their needs are and for the public to get a lot smarter about what are the the conflicting choices that we have yeah and how do we make decisions about that so the the affordable care act is a, a huge example of that where everybody wants the benefits of it but then people don't want the expense of it and so you you create systems which do a little bit of what you want but not all of it and then you're frustrated that it doesn't work and then you say, remember at the beginning where everybody said it can't be single payer? And so we did this thing instead because this is what you wanted. No, I don't remember that part, but now I'm unhappy about what's happening. So I, I think having a, a more educated public that is interested in talking about these issues, there's a, a little picture that often goes around the internet about what the media covers and what it should cover. And so it covers... <laughs> murder and crime and whatever the worst things that have happened in humanity and then celebrity gossip and you know who's pregnant and all of that sort of thing but what it doesn't cover is why are all the bees dying off what is what's happening with global warming how is our economy going to work in the future it it doesn't talk about any of those things and that's what we should be talking about you actually linked to a ted talk by peter diamandis on on your blog as well And uh, I think the the message of that is that things are getting better in a lot of ways. It's just that humans have this tendency to always look for what's going to kill them. You know, this yep. traces all the way back to to our <laughs> prehistoric sure. ancestors. For um, sure. do, do you really believe that things are getting better? And how can we ensure that it's a a safe transition towards yeah. whatever our future is? Yeah, I think um, I'm very Pollyannish about the world, and I. I think that it is for sure getting better and will continue to get better in ways that we can't even imagine. And talking to some of the technologists that are trying to unleash almost free energy. So solar power, there's huge Mm. potential. The price is getting exponentially cheaper. And Solar City just unveiled a, a new roofing system that is completely made out of solar panels. And Gorgeous, looks super yeah. cool. Yeah. I was like, "Oh, I want that right now." <laughs> uh, do I have to shovel on top of my roof? Like, how is that going to work? But the the technology is moving to this amazing space. And as you look at exponential technologies, one of the things that happens is they call it dematerialization. So, oh yeah, if you look at your cell phone. Sometimes people will show like a Radio Shack ad from 1980 that has, you know, $5,000 worth of equipment. It's like a handheld recorder and a camera and, you know, all of these different GPS system. Um, All of those things exist on our cell phone and there isn't an additional cost for all of those things. We're moving to that place with solar where the cost is getting so low and the technology is getting so much better and so much more efficient that just in a few years, solar could meet a lot of our energy needs. And, you know, maybe in 15 years could meet all of our energy needs. And the price of that will continue to go down where thinking about the cost of energy won't even be something that we consider where now we fight wars about access to energy reserves when we have all of this free energy that's hitting our planet every single day. So if we can crack the energy issue then you crack the clean water issue because it's expensive to get salt out of ocean water. Mm-hmm. But if energy doesn't cost much, then it's very cheap to do that. Yeah. And if you fix that problem, then you fix the food shortage problem because you can get water anywhere. 
and people can live much farther away from work and we could sort of decentralize cities and people could live in lots of different places because you wouldn't be worried about how much gas would cost to go to work and you'd have a car that could drive itself and so you could be doing work as you were on your way to work or you could could work remotely because we have all of those technologies. So I think we're on a path where there's huge change that will make the world completely different and the things that we have wars about and fight about and those scarce resources that we're constantly grabbing, there's actually abundance that's coming towards us. And yeah. so how do we harness that abundance to, to make the world a better place? That's one beautiful vision. I that's hope we amazing. get there quick because boy, it's exhausting in the <laughs> interim, but we're, we're right on the precipice. Absolutely. Wrapping up here, I want to ask what you wish you would have known when you were, say, 30 years old. Yeah, yeah. The piece that I am coming to more and more often now is that anything is possible. Mm -hmm. And I used to set ideas of like, oh, I couldn't do that because that's that's too big of a job or that's too great of an opportunity or I'll never get to see that beautiful place. And so I created boxes for myself that weren't real. If I could talk to my 30-year-old self, it would it would be to say, none of that is real. Have a clear vision of what you're trying to accomplish. And then you start to notice, people talk a lot about serendipity, but it's really, if you're clear about what you want to do, then you start to notice all of the opportunities that will help you get there. If you're fuzzy about what you want to do, then it seems like there's nothing out there because you're not really clear what you want. Yeah. I, received a, a Bush Fellowship last year and we did a, a, circ, a kind of all the fellows were talking about who do you want to meet during the fellowship and so folks are like oh there's this great researcher at UCLA that's an expert in my area and um, all these wonderful people and my goal was to to meet Sir Richard Branson and people were like what are you what are you talking about how would that even happen I'm like I have no idea how that would happen but his philanthropy is amazing, and he runs 400 companies from a beautiful tropical island, <laughs> and I want to know how he does that. And once that vision was super clear, then I spent more time reading about what he was doing because I was trying to, oh, is he going to speak somewhere? Let me kind of figure that out. And then when he was going to speak at a philanthropy conference, a bunch of people in my network said, you wanted to talk to Richard Branson. He's going to be at that conference. You should be at that conference. Hmm. And people start to help connect you to opportunities. I ended up uh, getting an opportunity to interview him after he did his keynote at the conference, which was an amazing experience and one that was I made it way more stressful than it needed to be. I was like panicked about the whole thing. And he, of course, is just like cool as a cucumber all the time. But um, we had a great conversation and it went really well. And then Afterwards, I was a little bit disappointed because I was like, I really wanted to interview him on Necker Island where his house is in the Caribbean because I saw it on Cribs when I was 17 and I thought that's the most amazing place in the world. And so a few months later, through one of the futurist networks that I was a part of, they said, we're doing a fundraising event for this network. It's going to be on Necker Island. And if you're interested and you want a spot, let us know. I was like, I for sure want a spot. And so reached out and figured out, did I have enough fellowship funds to be able to do it? Found a roommate on the island so that I could cut the cost down. Talked to the coordinator and ended up getting a a speaking space during the conference. And it was the most amazing experience ever. And it's, you know, he stayed for the whole week and participated in the, the conversations that we were having. And I learned so much about how he thinks about the future and his 
big, bold goals of making the world a better place yeah. that it, it helped me to clarify my thinking about what was possible. Break down your boundaries. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Set, set big goals and you'll work harder <laughs> to get there. What a cool story too. That's it's, just fantastic. It was a lot of fun. Next, let's say young entrepreneurs are applying for these grants that mm-hmm. your foundation gives. What do you look for? Just breaking down a couple specific points. Yeah. Yeah, most foundations, so we're an association of foundations, so we don't Mm -hmm. give away any dollars, but our members do. Sure, sure. And most of them give to nonprofit organizations. So for entrepreneurs, it's connecting to those organizations. So Northside Economic Opportunity Network is a business incubator in North Minneapolis that provides amazing services, uh, lower cost loans to entrepreneurs, really helps them to connect to opportunities to build their business. Mm-hmm. There are similar organizations all over the state and all over the country that do that work. So those umbrella organizations are the nonprofits. And foundations are funding those organizations to help them be effective as they're supporting entrepreneurs. The other thing that I encourage is for entrepreneurs to think about who's the customer base in the nonprofit world as well. So mm. often people forget about the nonprofit sector as an economic entity, and it is. It's, you know, employs tons of people, spends lots of money on office supplies and meeting space and all of those sort of things, new technologies. And so as entrepreneurs are developing their services, sometimes there's an opportunity to, here's a set of tools that we offer to uh, for-profit businesses, and here's the suite of tools that we have for, for nonprofits. We use Salesforce as our database, and they have a whole team that's focused on what a nonprofits need from Salesforce. Hmm. And uh, we use the heck out of that system. So it's <laughs> it's figuring out how to better partner with the sector. Excellent. How about books that you have gifted most often? Books that yeah. you just have to share? Yeah. What would you say? My favorite is uh, Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think by oh, yeah? Peter Diamandis. It really outlines what's possible. And he has a strong vision of where entrepreneurs live in that space. So I'm part of a network that he has called Abundance 360, which is entrepreneurs that are developing businesses that help a billion or more people. (laughs) So how do you develop clean water or new agricultural systems or new forms of transportation or energy? There are wonderful opportunities in the future for entrepreneurs, but understanding what's coming next is so critical. And I the piece that I've just learned uh, in the last couple of years, sometimes you'll he- hear a new story and they'll say, oh, there's a new TV and it cost $50,000. And I go, well, that's really dumb because you're going <laughs> to sell two TVs. Why would you do that? And it's because the cost of the memory and LED TVs, or, no, LCD, L something, D TVs. <laughs> um, it's a little memory chip that's in each pixel. And mm. it's very expensive to do that when memory is expensive. But as they were building these tools in these companies, they knew in four years the cost of memory is going to be this much cheaper because of Moore's Law. And yeah. so we're going to build the technology for the place on the curve where it's actually going to be inexpensive and useful for everybody. Yeah. And yeah. So I'd love to see more entrepreneurs that are building towards what's coming next as opposed to building for the current reality for right that now. we're part of. Yeah. That, that is fantastic advice. That's great. Who else... In this community, do you think is doing good work? Yeah, I think there's a ton of people. Um, I've been very impressed by Marilyn Carlson Nelson. She runs Carlson Company, which has Radisson and all of the the hotels that are a piece mm. of that chain. 
And she does a ton of great work about sex trafficking, which is not what you would expect somebody that runs a a hotel chain to do. But it is a passion of hers to make sure that people are not being trafficked. And hotels are often where people are being trafficked. And so their hotels have developed amazing systems for anybody in the hotel to notice when trafficking is happening and to call the police, where I think most hotel companies would sort of turn a blind eye or not want to get involved. Mm. She has really ensured that the company has a leadership role in that issue. She's also the chair of the Super Bowl host committee. Minnesota has a Super Bowl coming next year. Super Bowl is one of the largest sex trafficking events that happens every single year. And so if you know that's the case, then how do you build the systems in place beforehand so that that isn't the case when the Super Bowl comes to Minnesota? And she is really leading the charge on that issue and making sure it's front of mind and that we're all excited about Super Bowl and there's going to be lots of great parties and all these things are happening, but how to make sure that the the negative pieces don't happen as well. Yeah, full picture, full picture. For sure. And uh, finally, where can people find you if they want to connect? Yeah, so tristaharris.org or at tristaharris on Twitter. Awesome. Wonderful. Great talking to you. Yeah, thanks for the time. Thanks so much. All right, folks, Trista said it herself. Be clear about what you want to do, and you'll start to see the opportunities. Make it happen, people! For more support in your endeavors, visit Trista's blog, tristaharris.org, and hear more conversations like this one at chancebychance.com. To support the podcast, share it with your friends and coworkers, leave a rating or review on iTunes, and donate. You can find that link on my website, chancebychance.com. 20% of all proceeds are given to the Iodine Global Network. Big shout out to Josh Johnson at Saxophone Capone on SoundCloud for providing the opening tune to this podcast. And until next time, my friends, thank you for listening.